I'll try talking louder. Okay, everybody, we'll try to take our seats and start. We'll begin with prayer. It's uh, nine o'clock, so we'll get we'll get cracking. <laughs> I'll open up with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for our day. We thank you that we have the opportunity to gather together and learn more about your word from the book of Revelation. And we do pray, Lord, as we look at this last battle and banquet, that we would learn more about how you come to protect your saints and also judge your enemies. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So today, as you can see, we're in Revelation 19, verses 17 through 21. This is the last section in Revelation chapter 19. So next time, I'm going to have Dana Birkinshaw is going to be teaching on the Millennial Kingdom. And he's going to be teaching on the various views. And so I'm delighted that Dana is going to be doing that. So today, notice the title is The Last Battle and Banquet. And I just want everyone to be aware that as I say that, there is another battle that comes after the Millennial Kingdom, after the thousand-year reign of Christ. But I'm referring to the last battle in this epoch of time. In other words, at the end of the 70th week of Daniel you have the messianic age be consummated. And so that's why I really look at this being the last battle in this known era or this known epoch of time. That's what I'm referring to. And there's also a banquet. So I want to begin by looking at this angel. He's going to gather all of the beasts of the air, the the birds, to feed upon the enemies of God as Jesus Christ vanquishes them as they surround Jerusalem. And that's the topic here. In Revelation 19, verses 17 through 18, John sees this. He says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God. Now here's the purpose. So that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and those who sit on them in the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great. Now, notice here, John sees this angel, and it says that he was standing in the sun. Now, what's the purpose of that? Well, I think it's twofold. Number one, the brilliance of standing in the sun shows some degree of glory that this angel has. Not because he's like God, but because he comes from that realm. But also, I think it's used as a literary device to show us as to why it is that all the birds in the heavens, so to speak, can hear him. Because he has the vantage point of being so high that all of the birds can hear him. So that might be one of the reasons it's used as well. Now, notice when he calls all of the birds to feed upon the enemies of God, it, this is the culmination of the Battle of Armageddon that began back in Revelation chapter 16. So I want you to turn your Bibles back to Revelation 16, 13 through 14. Please turn your Bibles there because what we want to do is just review how did this battle start and then now we're seeing the culmination of it. The battle started in Revelation 16. Remember, it was the demons who brought all of the enemies of God to surround Jerusalem. A lot of them across the Euphrates, remember, coming from Babylon. So Revelation 16, verses 13 through 14, it says, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, remember that's Satan, and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, there's the false trinity, three unclean spirits, here are the demons, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. Now remember in the Old Testament, there was a lot of references to the day of the Lord. And oftentimes that depicted a broad period of time in which God would judge his enemies but also save his people. Well, here you see a reference to the great day of God, the Almighty. I think that that refers back to the two places that you see the term the great and terrible day of Yahweh. That would be the day in which the Messiah himself would come and fight against the enemies. So here in Revelation 19, we see that the battle is at the end. Now Jesus has come and he vanquishes his enemies so much so that there's a feast for these birds. They can actually eat upon the enemies of God. Now I also want you to see a connection between this gathering of the birds to feed upon the enemies of God 
and what's stated in Ezekiel 39, because the same thing was stated then. Turn your Bibles to Ezekiel 39:17. And as you're turning to Ezekiel 39:17, I want you to realize that this is a battle that I believe is going to occur at the end of the millennial kingdom. Now, I can't be dogmatic on that. There are some who would say this is the same battle as the battle of Armageddon, the battle that we're looking at here in Revelation 19. But I'll show some distinctions in a moment. But I want you to see that in Ezekiel 39, in particular in verse 17, you have the same idea that the birds are going to be gathered together to feast upon the enemies of God. And so John certainly knew that. And by the inspiration of the Spirit, you see this battle is much the same. Ezekiel 39, 17, it says, As for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God. Notice it says, Speak to every kind of bird and to every beast of the field. Now notice, what, are they, what is he supposed to say to them? Assemble and come and gather from every side to my sacrifice, which I am going to sacrifice for you as a great sacrifice on the mountains of Israel, that you may eat flesh and drink blood. So again, the sacrifice would be the enemies of God that God was going to vanquish. Now, I believe that battle, if you read Ezekiel 30 and 39, remember that's the battle of Gog and Magog. I believe that that's a reference to the battle that occurs in Revelation 20, verses 8 through 9. So think about this. Let's get our timeline down. You have the 70th week of Daniel. At the end of the seven years, you have this battle where all the nations surround Jerusalem. Jesus returns, he smites his enemies, he sets up his millennial kingdom. Satan is bound for that a thousand years. But in Revelation 20, remember Satan is going to be loosed? And in Revelation 20, verses 8 through 9, Satan leads a final battle against Jerusalem where all the nations come against Jerusalem again. And this time all Christ does is he calls fire down from heaven. So here's the point. The big debate is in Ezekiel 38 and 39, the battle of Gog and Magog. Is that the battle that happens at Armageddon? Or is it the battle that happens after the Millennial Kingdom? I believe it's the one after the Millennial Kingdom in Ezekiel 38 through 39. Now, why is similar language being used? Well, because it's going to be a similarly lopsided battle. The enemies of God are going to be fed upon by the beasts of the air. Now, let me give you three distinctions between the battle at the end of the 70th week and the battle that occurs Gog and Magog after the Millennial Kingdom. Let me give you three distinctions why I think they're different. Number one, the battle of Gog and Magog happens when Israel is dwelling securely. Okay, now can we really say at any point in history, all the way through the 70th week of Daniel, that Israel is dwelling securely? I think not. You couldn't say it today. You certainly can't say it when they're being surrounded by the enemies of God in the 70th week. In fact, turn your Bibles to Ezekiel 38, verse 8. Let me show you where we see this discussion that in the battle of Gog and Magog, the enemies of God come against Israel while they're dwelling securely. Ezekiel 38, verse 8. Now, there are similarities you'll see. There's all the nations are gathering together, together again. Ezekiel 38, verse 8. It says, after many days, talking to the nations, you will be summoned. In the latter years, you will come into the land that is restored from the sword, whose inhabitants, talking about Israel, have been gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which have been a continual waste. But its people were brought out from many nations, and they are living securely, all of them. Now again, notice the term living securely, batah. In the Hebrew, they had a feeling of security. Does Israel have that security now? Well, no. They just had to use their iron dome to protect them from missiles launched from Hezbollah. They just had to shoot how many terrorists trying to get in from Hamas. They're always under threat all the time. You certainly won't be able to say this in the 70th week of Daniel when the nations gather against them. When Antichrist persecutes them so bad, it's called the time of Jacob's great distress. So again, that's why I think Gog and Magog, referred to in Ezekiel 38 and 39, must be the battle that occurs after the Millennial Kingdom. Let me give you a second reason. The battle of Armageddon is led by the beast. Notice the battle of Gog and Magog in in Revelation 20 at the end of the Millennial Kingdom. That's led by Satan himself. That's a big distinction. Number three, 
Christ wins the battle of Armageddon, what we're reading about here in Revelation 19, by the word that proceeds from his mouth. It's depicted as a sword. But at the battle that occurs after the millennial kingdom, there's fire that comes down from heaven. Okay, so that seems to be a distinction I don't think that can be reconciled. Now, maybe it can, but that seems to be a difference. So for those three reasons, I think the battles are different. So here in Revelation 19, you're going to have all the enemies of God that surround Jerusalem. Jesus comes down. He wipes them out by the spoken word. The birds of the air feast upon them. At the end of the millennial kingdom, now the beast isn't bringing all the enemies of God against Israel. Now it's Satan himself, and Jesus simply will call down fire and there will be another feast. Okay, so again, the reason I'm calling this the last battle in Revelation 19 is because it's the last battle prior to the Millennial Kingdom, a new epoch of history. All right, now, I want you to turn your Bible and see another connection with this idea of the birds and the end of the 70th week, the birds feeding upon the enemies of God. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 25, or excuse me, Matthew 24, verses 25 through 28. Matthew 24 Verses 25 through 28. Now, the reason I want you to turn there is because in this section of Matthew, the Olivet Discourse, Jesus is referring to the end of the 70th week of Daniel. And I just want you to see the connection between the birds of the air feeding upon the enemies of God that occurs here in Revelation 19 at the end of the 70th week and what Jesus was saying. So you see, hey, you know what? The Bible speaks with one voice as to what the 70th week of Daniel will be like. Matthew 24, verses 25 through 28. Jesus says, Behold, I have told you in advance. So if they say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Or behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the parousia of the Son of Man be, the coming of the Son of Man. Verse 28, he says, Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Now, that could be an idiomatic expression, simply Jesus saying, look, it's so obvious, these things, don't go out trying to find the Messiah, because at the parousia of Christ, it's going to be so obvious, you're not going to have to try to find Jesus. Jesus finds you. Are you with me? He comes back, and it's so miraculous, his intervention, you can't miss it. So all these false Christs that will arise during that time period, nobody should ever listen to them, because when Christ comes... He'll make it known. Okay? But notice, so maybe that the idea when the corpse, notice in verse 28, wherever the corpse is there, the vultures also gather. It could be just an idiomatic expression saying it's obvious. But here, isn't it interesting, this is a reference to the end of the 70th week of Daniel, and it's a reference to where the corpse is, you have the birds of prey. Revelation 19, notice on the screen, the last battle, you have the corpses of God's enemies and you have birds of prey. So again, Jesus in the Olivet Discourse was saying the same thing that Revelation 19 is saying. The end of the 70th week of Daniel occurs with the enemies of God being fed upon by their enemies. Now, there's another passage, and just jot it down. You don't have to turn to it, but it's synonymous. Luke 17, verses 35 and 37. This is an important passage just for this reason. You remember, that was the reference where Jesus says, in those days, you'll have... Two that women that are grinding at one place, they're working in the field, one will be taken and the other will be left. My contention is that term left means to be abandoned for judgment. What's interesting is the question from the disciples is where? Where are they going to be abandoned? Well, then he says, well, where the body is, there the vultures are also gathered. He uses the same expression. In other words, they're going to be abandoned, the enemies of God, to this judgment that we're reading about in Revelation chapter 19. That's where the enemies of God go. Now, one thing I want to point out, let's talk about the universality of this judgment. Pull up my laser pointer. Notice the purpose statement of the birds. It says, so that you may eat the flesh of the kings and the flesh of the commanders and the flesh of the mighty men and the flesh of the horses and those who sit on them, the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, small and great. Some have concluded from that that every single enemy of God is vanquished at this battle. That there's not a single person that's an unbeliever that survives to go into the millennial kingdom. I don't think that that's necessarily warranted. Remember, this is all of the armies 
of the nations that are surrounding Jerusalem. I don't think it implies every man, woman, and child. But the point is, without class distinction, it doesn't matter how great you are. You could have been the general or the private. You could have been wealthy or poor. But every single one of the people that are part of the armies opposing God at this battle are going to be vanquished. Okay, so I say that because some people claim there are no unbelievers that can go into the millennial kingdom, and therefore you have to have believers who enter into the millennial kingdom in regular bodies to populate it so that you can have a rebellion of unregenerate at the end of the millennial kingdom that rebel against God. I don't think that's the case. I think we should understand that all of the people mentioned here in verse 18 make up the armies, but not necessarily every person on the planet. Does everyone understand the distinction? So if we send an army America to go fight against Jerusalem, God forbid, it wouldn't be made up of every single person. It would be made up of the fighting age men and women. Are you with me? But they would fit within all of these classes. There would be great ones and small ones. I think that's how we should understand this. Okay, now again, I won't be dogmatic about that, but that's, I think, the best reading. Okay, all right. Now, with that, let me continue onward. I want to talk about this reversal that we see at this great banquet. I want you to think about believers are going to be dining with Christ. Unbelievers are going to be fed upon by birds of the air. I was talking to Bob before the class. He said, either you're dining or you're the meal. (laughs) It's a good way of putting it. In fact, I wish I would have put that down as my my title. That's exactly right. You're either dining with the king or the king's beasts are feeding upon you. That's the stark contrast. Now, here's what I mentioned this. I mentioned this because all the way through the Bible, there ends up being a reversal at a banquet. In the Old Testament, the banquet was called a mishta. And what happens at a mishta banquet is that there's going to be judgment upon the enemies of God, and the people of God end up being saved. And this is not only the final battle that we see in Revelation 19, it is the final banquet. Why? Because we're at the marriage supper of the Lamb, what the Lord's Supper is foreshadowing, but the enemies of God are being fed upon. There's a reversal. We're dining with the king. They're being fed upon the enemies of God. That's what happens to them. So this great reversal you see all the way through the Bible. Bob wrote an article, and you can look into even greater detail through his article. It's called Dining with the King. That's the title of the article. I highly recommend everyone read it. By the way, it'd be a great study if you want to do a study with your children or grandchildren or you have some kids. It'd be a great study for them. And at the end of the, the, the article, you could say, well, which meal do you want to be part of? You know, Do you want to be fed upon by the beasts of the air or do you want to be dining with the king? I think you could use it for evangelism in that way. But let me unpack this. I'm going to lead you through, and for further details, you can look up Bob's article. But let me bring in a perusal. I'm going to go back to the first mishta, the first banquet listed in the Bible. It's in Genesis 19.3. Now, remember Genesis 19, you have Lot taking in the angel, and he ends up having a banquet. Okay, well, let me read it. This is Genesis 19.3. This is, remember, the angel's going to depart, but Lot is urging him to remain. It says, Yet he urged him strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. These are the angels. And he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. So here the angels end up having a banquet, Notice the term feast, it's mishta, or I should say in Hebrew it's mishta. You usually pronounce the last syllable more hardly than the first. But notice this feast is where you have Lot and his family saved, but if you read the entire account, what happens to Sodom and Gomorrah? They're judged. Sodom and Gomorrah are smashed, but Lot and his family are saved. And so at the very first banquet of the Bible... You have salvation upon the people of God and judgment upon the enemies of God. Does everyone see that? Now, it's interesting also in that in Luke 17, Jesus likens the days of the Son of Man at the 70th week of Daniel to the days of Lot. And he says just in the days of Lot, they were eating, drinking, given in marriage. They were building and planting. They were selling. But he says on the very day that Lot and his family went out, from Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone came down from heaven. So you also see that Jesus uses Sodom and Gomorrah, this very first instance of a Mishta banquet, 
to show that at the very end, everything's going to be just like that. Life will be going on as it always has, and the people of God will be removed, and the enemies of God will be suddenly judged. That's how it always happens. Noah was removed, judgment came. Lot and his family are removed, judgment came. What happens in the end? The people of God are removed, judgment comes. That's how it works. All right, and again, it ties into the banquet. We're going to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. The enemies of God will be feasted upon. Same thing over and over and over. Now, let's fast forward in the Bible. Let's go ahead two chapters. Genesis 21.8. Here's the narrative of Isaac being weaned, and he's given the promise. Remember, he's the promised son. But here, Hagar, her son Ishmael, ends up mocking. Well, Ishmael ends up sent away at this feast. Genesis 21.8. Referring to Isaac, it says the child was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast. Notice a feast, Mishta. There's a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. What happens? Isaac was made heir of the promise. What happens to Ishmael? He's sent away. You have one that's given the promise. The other one, in a sense, is given judgment. It happens at a Mishta, at a banquet. This happens all the way through the Bible. Let's keep going. Here's 2 Samuel 3, verse 20. Now remember, this is where you have a divided kingdom. And you have a battle between Saul's army, headed up by Abner, and the army commander of Judah that's under David. His name is Joab. Notice here, 2 Samuel 3.20. It says, Then Abner and 20 men with him came to David at Hebron. Remember Hebron, 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem. It says, And David made a feast, there's Mishta, for Abner and the men who were with him. Now remember, who does Abner represent? Abner represents Saul. He was Saul's army commander. If you remember after this narrative, Joab ends up murdering Abner. So right after this feast, what do you have? Well, you have David's house being established because there's no contender from Saul that can even come after him. But what happens to Saul's house? Well, Saul's house, Abner, is subjugated. They're judged. In fact, Abner's, Abner's murdered by Joab. Abner Mishta, at a banquet, there's a reversal. Again, all the way through the Bible, you have a banquet, someone's being saved, someone's being judged. Think about the book of Esther. Esther is the same thing. Remember, Mordecai and the Jews are under threat by Haman. Haman wants to put them to death, but there's a banquet in which you have a reversal. In fact, I want before I read this, I want Lonnie to read, if you will, um, does Eric have the mic? Oh, I'm sorry, Norm does. If everyone would turn your Bibles to Esther 7, we're just going to read verses 1 through 10, because I think it's warranted here. And so please turn your Bibles to Esther chapter 7. I just give people a minute here, Lonnie, before you start reading. I'll turn my Bible open too. I don't have it in my notes. Yeah, that's right. Okay, go ahead, Lonnie. Oh, okay. Uh, this is in uh, New King James, um, Esther 7. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther, and on the second day at the banquet of wine, the king again said to Esther, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request up to half the kingdom? It shall be done. Then Queen Esther answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me at my petition and my people at my request. For we have been sold, my people, and I to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. So King Azurius answered and said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he? Who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? And Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. So Haman was terrified before the king and queen. 
Then the king arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine and went into the palace. Stop there. I'm sorry. Stop right there, Lonnie. Just hold it right there. Notice the banquet. Where are they at? They're at a banquet. And what happens at the banquet? Well, the Jews and Mordecai are supposed to be killed. And who wants to kill them? Well, Haman does. But what ends up happening is a great reversal. This is the same reversal that happens at the end of history. All of the enemies of God are persecuting us, the people of God in the 70th week of Daniel. But all of a sudden, Jesus Christ intervenes. The people of God end up dining with the king while the enemies of God end up being fed upon. And so this is being foreshadowed all the way through the Bible. So I'm sorry, keep going, Lonnie. Oh, I'm sorry, Norm. We'll have him keep reading. Uh, okay, this is verse 7. Then the king arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine and went into the palace garden, but Haman stood before Queen Esther, pleading for his life, for he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. When the king returned from the palace garden to the place of the banquet of wine, Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was. Then the king said, Will he also assault the queen while I am in the house? As the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Now Harbana, one of the eunuchs, said uh, to the king, Look, the gallows fifty cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. Then the king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's wrath subsided. And then the king's wrath subsided. Isn't that interesting? Here are the very gallows that were prepared for Mordecai end up being used for Haman. And it all happens, the great reversal, as Bob writes in his article, it happens at Amishta. And again, here's Esther 5.4. Esther said, if it pleases the king, may the king and Haman come this day to the banquet, Mishta, that are prepared for him. So this all comes at a banquet, the great reversal, just as we see happening in Revelation 19. Now, we see the same thing in Isaiah 5. Here's the unregenerate, what they're going to do. They're going to have their banquet. These are the wealthy within Israel and all those who join in. Isaiah 5.12, it says, Their banquets, their mishtas, are accompanied by lyre and harp, by tambourine and flute and by wine. But they do not petition, or excuse me, pay attention to the deeds of Yahweh, nor do they consider the work of his hands. Here, the enemies of God, they'll have their banquets, but they want nothing to do with God. They want nothing to do with him. And what's very interesting is there's again a reversal. In Isaiah 5, the remnant... And the Gentiles here will have a messianic banquet. But all the proud unbelievers listed in Isaiah 5.12, they're going to be judged. You go ahead to Isaiah chapter 25. Remember Isaiah 24 is all about the wrath that comes upon the enemies of God. In fact, Isaiah 23 through 26 is really referred to as the little apocalypse. It really mirrors a lot of New Testament eschatology teaching that we read about in our New Testaments. Now, Isaiah 25, you have the salvation of God's people. Notice what it's likened to. Isaiah 25, 6 or 8, that says, The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet. Well, isn't that what we have at the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19? It's for all peoples, that is, for all believers, Jews and Gentiles, on his mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and the refined aged wine. And on this mountain, that's going to be Zion, he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. Now, what is that veil? Well, he says what it is. Verse 8, notice he says, He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all their faces. That's what we see in Revelation 21. All the tears are wiped away, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Isaiah chapter 5, we just read that in the last slide. The enemies of God throughout history, they have their banquet. But at the end of time, God is going to throw the ultimate banquet for his people, and even death is going to be removed on his holy mountain. That's the great wedding marriage supper of the Lamb that we see in Revelation 19 that's being alluded to here. We keep going. I'll give you another one. Here in Luke, 
before I put this up, remember in the Gospels, Jesus is depicted as dining with whom? He dines with sinners. And the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Israel, they can't stand it. And in their self-righteousness, they accuse Jesus of dining with sinners. Turn your Bibles to Luke 5, verses 30 through 32. I want you to see that in the Gospels, when Jesus dines with sinners, it's a foreshadowing of this great banquet. But some people aren't going to be in the banquet, and the irony is it's the religious leaders of Israel. It's those who think they're righteous, they're going to be out, and those who are willing to say, I'm a sinner, and come to Christ on his terms, they're in. That's the great reversal. And this is what Bob has been showing his time. And by the way, read the article, please, Dining with the King. It's my personal favorite of all, and there's many favorites I have, but out of your CIC articles, Bob, but that's my favorite favorite. It's the favoritist. I don't think there is one, but it's bad English. Okay. Luke 5, 30 through 32. Notice there it says, The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now stop right there. Notice the sinners. Why are you dining with sinners? Well, I've always thought that's the only option Jesus has. (laughs) But the irony is they don't think they are. There's irony in that. They don't think they are sinners. Verse 31, it says, And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. There's irony in Jesus' words. Jesus knows that these men are sinners. The problem is they don't know it. They don't think it. And so you see this all the way through the Gospels. Another good example, we won't turn to it, but remember in Luke chapter 7, Jesus comes into the house of a Pharisee. And when he comes into the house in the ancient Near East, it was customary for the the person who owned the home they would give a kiss to the person who's coming into their home. They would also anoint them and wash their feet. Well, conspicuously absent is that kind of greeting by the Pharisee. Why? Because he thinks so little of Jesus that Jesus isn't worthy of that respect. But all of a sudden, in Luke chapter 7, there's a harlot, this woman who comes in. And she's the one who washes Jesus' feet with her own tears. She anoints his head, and she does exactly what the owner of the home, the Pharisee, should have done. She blesses Christ. She takes care of him and gives him this warm greeting where the owner of the home wouldn't. And this Pharisee who thinks he's righteous stands in condemnation of both Jesus and the woman. But all the while, Jesus says she's going to be in and he's going to be out at the last banquet. And so all the time that Jesus is dining... He's dining with sinners. Yeah, Bob. For those who want to look this up for themselves, sir, that article I mentioned. Yeah. It's issue 126, fall 2013. Dining with the king. Jesus dines with sinners. How banquets in the Bible reveal salvation or judgment. Amen. And so... Wow. Wow. That's okay, you can get a copy <laughs> if you want to read it. I, it's a pretty amazing thing. I was just preaching through Luke when I ran across this. Yeah. And so I thought, well, let's, I'd like to look in the Old Testament and see where the ground for things right. are. Right, yeah. And I found all these banquets. Wow. And it's every time. Every time. Every single time. And this is the foundation for what Paul was talking about in First Corinthians the Lord's Supper about the Lord's Supper yes. okay and the Lord's Supper is for sinners not people who think they're so much better than everybody else they look down their nose and somebody else that shows up yeah and if you want to look at the opposite of that I'm not here to criticize the Brits but people were looking at that big wedding they had there <laughs> Well, everybody was proper. Everything was, you know, royal. And, you know, Americans like to watch that because we don't have anything like that here. Yeah. We know we're a bunch of wretches. But uh, (laughs) anyhow, the point is, it would be like Jesus is with this proper banquet. Here comes this wretched sinner. 
finding mercy from Jesus. Wow. And the story of the gospel, that's why I like that song, Steve, you and the ministry, you did that one about uh, uh, part of the family of God. There's a line in it, from the door of the orphanage to the house of the king. Wow. Beautiful. From the door of the orphanage to the house of the king. And the one thing we know for a fact is that we're part of this if it means we had absolutely nothing going for us. God brought us enemies into his banquet. Amen. And the only way we could ever be clothed properly is by what God does for us. Amen. Because we couldn't afford to go to the royal wedding. Right. That's you right. You saw the one in, <laughs> That's in right. Britain. Well said. We, no, we couldn't afford that. We, we had to elope or <laughs> whatever, <laughs> go to the justice of the peace. But uh, the, the royal banquet is for sinners who found grace from Amen. Jesus. Wow. Thank you, Bob. Yeah, great article. Um, think about, as you said that, Mephibosheth. Remember Mephibosheth? Yeah, David wanted to find someone to give chesed, mercy to. Mephibosheth comes. Remember, he should be put to death. Why? Because he's part of Saul's family. So this crippled boy, think about you and I are spiritual cripples. We couldn't come to God. We couldn't come to the king. But King David goes and gets the cripple, Mephibosheth, and he brings him to the, the dinner table. And he should put Mephibosheth to death. Mephibosheth is quaking in his boots. But what does the king say to him? You're going to eat forever at my table. And what does Mephibosheth say? Who am I but a dead dog to eat at the king's table? Again, that happens at a banquet. That's who you and I are, a bunch of Mephibosheths, a bunch of dead dogs. But we've been brought to the king's table. Amen. And by the way, that's all in Bob's article as well. So very fun. Okay, now let me just show you. I'm going to show you a passage from the New Testament where Jesus talks about this reversal that happens at this banquet that we're reading about in Revelation 19. Luke 13, verses 26 through 29. Jesus says, Then you... By the way, he's saying this to the religious leaders. Then you will say, excuse me, begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I, will t- I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. In that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves being thrown out, And they will come from east and west and from north and south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. So the irony is the religious leaders of Israel, because they missed Messiah, they'll be cast out of this messianic banquet. But all of these people, even Gentiles, notice the west, the east, the north, the south, anybody who will come to Yahweh and his terms through faith in Christ, they're going to be partakers of the banquet, the marriage supper of the Lamb. So again, you see this all the way through both the Old and the New Testament. There's a reversal that happens at the banquet. You're either going to be dining with the king or you're going to be the meal. You're either feasting with Christ or fed upon by the birds of the air. And so let's get back to the last battle then. Revelation 19:19. It says, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Now stop there. In verse 19, what's being depicted is, remember, there was 10 nations in Revelation 17 that give their allegiance to the beast so that they will surround Jerusalem. This is depicted in uh, Daniel chapter 11, uh, verses, I believe it's verses 40 through 44. This is depicted in those passages as well where the Antichrist will develop a coalition of nations to surround Jerusalem And that's the beast and the kings of the earth. That's the ten nations that are being referred to. Now, the number ten is significant, I think, as well, because the ten refers to oftentimes fullness or completeness. So the symbology would be there. The entirety of man's armies are coming against Christ, and he puts them down. Now, as we read here Revelation 19.19, remember, this is exactly what was foretold by the prophet Zechariah. So I just want you to be aware, Zechariah was teaching the same thing. Zechariah 14, 2 through 4. Now remember, this is some 450 years prior to Christ's coming, or actually earlier, 500 years. 
He says, this is the Lord, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. Stop there for just a moment. That's what we're reading about in Revelation 19. It's the same thing. It says, and the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. Now notice the uniqueness in verse 4. In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east. Okay, stop there. Let's do a little review. Let's remember Jesus in Matthew 23, he curses the temple because the Israelites are in unbelief. The Israelites don't believe that he's the Messiah. He departs them by saying this. He says, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. Psalm 118, 26. In other words, he's saying, you will not see me again until you acknowledge that I'm the Messiah. From there, Jesus goes and teaches at the Mount of Olives, his Olivet Discourse. He ends up being crucified that week, and he ascends later. And where does he ascend from? The Mount of Olives. Now, back in history, do you remember when Israel was in rebellion in the book of Ezekiel? You can read about this in Ezekiel 10 and 11. You don't have to turn to it. Just jot those chapters down. Because Israel was in rebellion against Yahweh, God's glory departed the temple just like Jesus does later. And then it departs from where? The Mount of Olives. But the great promise is one day the glory of Yahweh would return to the Mount of Olives. So go to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1. Do you remember when Jesus ascends into the heavens, he goes from the Mount of Olives and the angel says to the disciples, men of Galilee, why are you amazed and gaze skyward? This same man is coming back in like manner. So where is Jesus returning at the end of the 70th week? To the Mount of Olives. Where does it say in Zechariah 14 that he sets his feet? It's on the Mount of Olives. And why does he do that? To fight against the enemies that are surrounding Jerusalem in Revelation 19. That's what I'm, so I'm trying to put all this together to show you that all of it's speaking with a coherent whole. There's no contradiction. Jesus returns at the end of the 70th week of Daniel. He's going to place his feet on the Mount of Olives and he's going to fight against the enemies of God. It's all going to happen. That's why the Mount of Olives is so significant. All the nations will be brought to battle and destruction there. Okay, so continuing on, we see that the beast and false prophet will be thrown into hell. Revelation 19, verses 20 through 21, it says, And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worship his image. Let me stop there for just a moment. I want to make a quick comment. Notice here, those who receive the mark of the beast. Remember, according to Revelation 14, all those who receive the mark of the beast, they're lost. If you have the mark of the beast, you're lost. Why? Because you're giving allegiance to Antichrist rather than Christ. So all of the earth dwellers, those who don't belong to God, those who are unbelievers, they're going to receive the mark of the beast. So that's why he's relating it to them. Notice he goes on to say, And those who worshipped his image, these two, that's the beast and the false prophet, were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. Verse 21, it says, And the rest were killed with a sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, that's from Jesus, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Okay, so Jesus is going to destroy his enemies by the power of his spoken word. That's why he depicts the sword is coming out of his mouth. Just as Jesus had the power to speak all things into existence, according to Colossians chapter 1, Jesus has the power to uphold the entire universe. He also has the power to judge his enemies by the spoken word. That's the power that he has. Now, notice here in the red, the beast and the false prophet are going to be thrown alive into the lake of fire. Okay, now I want to do a little bit of logic with you. Think about the lake of fire is referred to as the second death. Do you remember later in Revelation 20, it'll say, blessed is he who is part of the first resurrection, for the second death has no power over him. So here, think of the irony and think about what this indicates about death and hell. Here you have the beast and you have the false prophet are thrown physically alive into the lake of fire, which is known as the second death. Okay, now the reason I'm laboring that point is death really is separation, isn't it? The first death is separation of body and soul. But the second death 
is separated from God for all eternity in the lake of fire. So that's why they can be physically alive, but undergo the second death. Are you with me? And the reason that's significant is it shows us that in the lake of fire, annihilation is not what occurs, but eternal bodily torment. That's, I think, why it's significant, because here even the beast and the false prophet are thrown alive into the lake of fire. Now, with that, I want to do a little bit of eschatology doctrine. I want to distinguish between Hades and hell. Okay, now, the reason I want to labor this point is I want you to realize that Hades, I believe, is the temporal holding place for all unbelievers. That's where they go after they die. Okay, so an unbeliever, when they die, the first death, there's a separation of body and soul. Their body goes into the ground, but their soul goes to Hades, a place of temporal holding, awaiting the lake of fire, awaiting the white throne judgment. But when a believer dies, remember what does it say in 2 Corinthians 5, 8? To be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. See, the separation for a believer is just the separation of our body, but our soul goes to be with the Lord. We're in glory. So that's why Paul could say to me, to live is Christ and die is gain. That's the Apostle Paul who saw the third heaven. He was there. And he knew it was great gain. So when we have just put Milford in the ground and we've just put Bill Lindsay in the ground, we can stand comforted to say, for the people of God, that's being right in the presence of the Lord. But not so with the enemies of God. So let's distinguish between Hades and hell. Hades is the place of temporary punishment of unbelievers awaiting the white throne judgment. Now, let me try to show you the distinction between Hades and hell. Let me show you a passage that I think alludes to this. Revelation 20, verse 13. We're going to come to this. It says, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Now, notice the phrase death and Hades. They're often seen together. And from that, some scholars think this is what's called a hendiadus. Does anyone know what a hendiadus is? It's where you use two terms, but you really are saying one thing. So the idea then would be that death and Hades is really the same thing. It's just the grave. But I think there is a distinction to be made between death and Hades. And I'll show you some more evidence here in a moment. But to me, Revelation 20.13, the reason it uses death is because it focuses on the state of those who are going to be thrown into the lake of fire, that the white throne judgment, the state is that they're dead. They're not physically alive. But Hades focuses on their location. Where do the dead who are unregenerate go? Well, they go to Hades. Okay? Now, let me try to show you why I think there should be a distinction. And this is tough because there's not a lot of data given to us in the New Testament. But let me show you one passage where I think it begs that there has to be a distinction between death and Hades. Turn your Bibles to Revelation 6, 8. As you're turning to Revelation 6, 8, remember, this is the fourth seal. I believe it's the fourth seal, if I remember. That's where you have the reference to the sword, famine, pestilence, wild beasts, this judgment that comes upon the world in the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel. And remember, it kills 25% of the Earth's population. By the way, the most deaths that ever occurred in World War II, the world population was 8%. That's bad. But the opening battles in the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel will be three times worse than the worst warfare that we've ever had. That's how bad it will be. So Revelation 6, 8, this is what happens. It says, I looked and behold an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death. Notice it says, and Hades was following him. So stop there. Here's a literary device called personification. We know death isn't a person, but here John is personifying death like a rider. Like it's a person. But notice right after that, he also personifies Hades. Okay? Well, why would you have two personifications if they are indeed the same thing? The point is, those who die, the idea is that they're unregenerate, where do they go? They go to Hades. And that's why you have two independent personifications. Yes, they're linked together, because if you're dead and you're unregenerate, you go to Hades. But nonetheless, he personifies both of them. And again, it says authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine, with pestilence, and by the wild beasts of the earth. By the way, another passage that alludes to Hades is found in Luke 16. We won't turn to it, but remember in Luke 16 where Jesus talks about Lazarus and the rich man? The rich man, when he wakes up, where is he? Well, he's in Hades. 
Okay, so Hades, again, I think is the temporal place for the unregenerate. Where was Lazarus? Lazarus wasn't in Hades. Where was he? He was in Abraham's bosom. Why is that significant? Because God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So if you're in Abraham's bosom, you're with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Lazarus, because he was a believer, is with the Lord. And the point of Jesus' parable in saying this is that where is the rich man? Well, because he's an unbeliever, he is in Hades, the place of temporal torment awaiting the lake of fire. And of course, remember, the rich man says, hey, well, Lazarus, please, would you send someone to warn my brothers? And what's the answer? Well, ends, Jesus ends up saying, if they won't believe the law and the prophets, neither will they believe if even someone is raised from the dead. So that's the point of the, the comparison. But again, yeah. this is why I think there's a distinction between death and Hades. Yes? It's just kind of interesting, the description and how it fits with purgatory. Um, it's kind of creepy. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that. One thing is we're dealing with something that's revealed in Scripture. Purgatory is something that comes from 2 Maccabees. And that's why the Catholics are so zealous to hold on to their apocryphal writings. So remember, when we're talking about apocryphal writings, we're talking about the writings that are written during the intertestamental period, the 400-year window between the Old and the New Testament. So what the Catholics claim is that the Jews didn't have the right canon. They didn't have enough books of the Bible. Okay? What they would claim is that the Jews should have incorporated these books. What's very interesting, let me give you some evidence against that. First of all, Josephus. Now, Josephus is secular, and I'll get to the Bible in a moment, but even Josephus recognized that there was no prophet in Israel during that 400-year window between the Old and the New Testament. So this was widely understood by the Jews. If there was no prophet, if there's no prophet, who can speak for God? Therefore, you don't have any books that come from God. But here's absolute proof that the Jews had the right canon. Therefore, 2 Maccabees is out. Do you remember in Romans chapter 3, Paul has just said that both Jews and Gentiles are both sinners? Even the Jews have, who have the law, they can't abide by the law. Well, he asked the question in Romans 3.1, well, what advantage then is there in being a Jew? And he says there's one in every way, for they were given the very oracles of God. The point is they're given the very scripture. So the apostle Paul who speaks for Jesus as an apostle says that the Jews had the scriptures. Uh, another passage that alludes to this is, remember in, it's, this is in Matthew 23, you'd have to look it up in which specific verse, but remember Jesus talks about the blood of the Pharisees is going to come upon, or I'm sorry, the blood of all of the blood that was shed from righteous Abel to Zachariah, son of Berechiah, would come upon the Pharisees. Why? Because the Pharisees were killing the righteous just like Cain did to Abel beginning in Genesis, just as Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, was murdered in Second Chronicles. So Jesus used the beginning, Genesis, and the end of the Old Testament canon for the Jews. See, our Old Testament has the same books as the Jews, but ours goes from Genesis to Malachi. And one of the reasons I don't think the Jews wanted to end with Malachi, do you know what the last word in Malachi is? Curse. A cursing, the land will undergo a curse. Well, I don't know if that's true, but this is why I think they ended with Second Chronicles. So to them, the end of the book is Second Chronicles. So isn't it interesting? Jesus cites the beginning of the canon Genesis and the end of it, Second Chronicles, saying all of the blood that was shed in the Old Testament is going to come upon the generation of the Pharisees. Oh, somebody has it? Oh, I'm sorry. They were talking about something in the kitchen. I just heard someone say, I found it. So no disregard, Norm, sorry. But anyway, that's in Matthew 23. So all of that supplies evidence that indeed the canon of Scripture is as we have it. So they don't have a leg to stand on. So Hades here, notice there's no way to work yourself out of it. Those, there's no merits that can be supplied to you. There's nothing that indicates that it's anything but irreversible. And that's why it's so bad that the rich man in Luke 16 is found in it. Yeah, Peter. Yeah, this is a digression a little bit back to earlier when you were talking about um, Ishmael. Yeah. And um, again, um, I can't remember what slide that was here. We had it on here. But it it had to do with uh, Ishmael and Isaac. Yeah. The great reversal. Right. And so how would you respond to... 
somebody who views the Bible, you know, on the surface, and they go, gosh, that's not fair. Right. What did Ishmael have to do with this? Right. He's an innocent victim in all of this. Right, right. So how would we respond other than that God's sovereign? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think we have to respond with the God's sovereignty. The other issue is left our own devices. The real issue is election. The real issue is that God chose one and not the other. And the real issue is that left our own devices, none of us would seek after God. And so I think we have to go to people's sin nature and say, hey, left your own devices, you won't seek after God. There's none who seek after him, no, not one. Um, I like R.C. Sproul's famous example where someone asked him, what about the innocent aborigine in Africa? God would certainly never send them to hell. And he says, oh, you're right, God would never send an innocent aborigine to hell. The only question is, are there really any innocent aborigines? That's the real question, isn't it? So the question I think we have to pose to the unregenerate is to say, look, left your own devices, you're not going to seek after God. You're not going to seek his blessing. So if God didn't intervene and choose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, there would be no salvation. God intervened. He chose them. They didn't choose him, and no person would. So I think we just have to reveal our cards and say, look, that's the only way any sinner can be saved is that God chose some. He chose his plan of salvation to come that way. And by the way, through the plan of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, comes the Messiah, Anybody will trust upon him. Even Ishmael could have been part of those promises in the sense that he could have drawn near by trusting in the promise that God gave to to Abraham and Isaac. He wasn't necessarily cast out in the sense that he was forbidden from coming to faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and later Jacob. So the point is anyone who will come by, by faith to that God is welcome. It's a real universal call. But the fact of the matter is that God chose his vessels, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to bring it about. Well, and, and we believers as well, grace. But then, you know, I've heard this said many times among Christians. You know, I invited Jesus into my heart. Yeah. And that seems to me like a man's act, not right. a God doing the choosing. Right. And they should be recognizing that more as a response to God choosing them. Yeah, Out amen. of gratefulness. Exactly, and I don't even like the language. What does it mean in my heart? Um, I, I know it's, it's, a, it's ambiguous. The, the Bible will talk about receiving him. As many as received him, he gave him the right to become children of God. But this idea of reception means to gladly welcome. The idea is that you believe and you trust. That's the idea. And again, that's always seen as a gift from God in the Scripture. So we didn't choose Jesus to bring him into our heart, but he chose us and gave us the ability to believe. And that's why in John 6, 44, he says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Absolutely. Yep. So, well, here, let me, um, oops, I'm sorry, I'm on Genesis 21, but good question, Peter. Thank you. Let me just finish this up. So Hades, I think the one thing we have to say is Hades can't be purgatory. You can't earn yourself out of it. There's no merits that can be attributed to you. And all those who are in Hades end up being where? They end up being in the lake of fire. So the lake of fire is synonymous with hell. And you see that in various passages like Matthew 10, 28, Matthew 25, 41. This is a place of eternal torment. Notice I mentioned 2 Thessalonians 1, 9. Remember, it talks about eternal destruction. So destruction and hell in the Old Testament and in the New is not something that brings annihilation, but it brings eternal torment. So think about if your car is in a car accident, you say, yeah, my car was destroyed. It doesn't mean it was annihilated. In the same way, when some, some person is undergoing eternal destruction, according to 2 Thessalonians 1.9, it doesn't mean they're annihilated. It, they're going to undergo eternal punishment in the lake of fire. So all of those who are in death and Hades, which is for the unregenerate, that's in, they're in Hades, the temporal holding place. Notice it says in Revelation 20.14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. So the lake of fire is the, the eternal place where all the enemies of God will go. And the first to go there, according to the Bible that we read today in Revelation 19, is the beast and the false prophet. They're thrown alive into the lake of fire. And now this should remind us something I've heard many people say over the years, that if you're a believer, you've been born twice so that you only die once. But if you're an unbeliever, you're born once and you'll die twice. If you're not born again, born from above, you're undergo eternal torment. So that's where the beast, the false prophet, go as a result of the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's remind all of our listeners and everyone here that the only way to escape this second death 
is to be born from above by placing our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ all by the power of his spirit. If we'll flee to Jesus Christ, we're going to dine with the king. If we reject Jesus Christ, we'll be fed upon by the beasts of the air. Which meal we will be a partakers of all comes down to who we will trust in. If we trust in Jesus Christ, we'll have our partaking at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you've made it so clear in Scripture that you are the one who will judge your enemies, that you are the one who's powerful enough not just to judge but also to save your people. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us the profundity of Scripture so that we may know your ways, that we may trust in your promises. I pray, Lord, for my brothers and sisters here that you would enable us through your word to persevere into that day. We pray for Bob today and his voice, and we pray that we'd have ears to hear what you say through the book of Ephesians, that we'd realize that all believers are safe because of your work. We pray that you would let these things enable us to persevere to that last day. In Jesus' name, amen.